crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Nuktagal, your host for today's program. Thank you very much for listening in today. Thank you very much also for listening to last week's program, if you did, and sent in some feedback. We were talking about biblical archaeology in the age of scoffers, those people that would deny the historicity, the historical accuracy of the Bible. These people are everywhere, and yet what we find coming out of the ground in archaeological ex- excavations all over the Middle East, not just in the state of Israel, but obviously the Bible affects lots of areas through the Middle East, from modern-day Iran uh, all the way over uh, to, to the Mediterranean. So we are seeing lots of discoveries, less archaeological digs taking place these days in, in some of those states, and most of the archaeology uh, happening, I would say, Turkey, modern-day uh, Israel as well. Nevertheless, we are finding a lot that does prove the biblical accuracy of the Bible— And as those discoveries come to light, we report on them at Watch Jerusalem, our website, watchjerusalem.co.il, and also on this weekly podcast. Today, I do not want to talk about a past discovery. I want to talk about a discovery that is yet for the future. And this is the Tomb of the Kings. This is an ancient sepulcher that the Bible describes and secular documents describe as holding the very bodies of King David and Solomon and other of the righteous kings of Judah. And this is a discovery that is yet to happen. There are some claims that the Tomb of the Kings is somewhere off in the northern part, uh, north of the old city of Jerusalem. There's also some claims that the, the Tomb of the Kings has been discovered uh, and tombs of the sepulchres of David, either one of those terms is the same, uh, further south in the city of David, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Now, there is uh, even some markers if you do the tour. Uh, one of the tours of the city of David, you'll see some markers of potential tombs of David uh, in this area, which is basically these areas that have been cut out of bedrock that could very well be tombs. However, I don't think they are. I don't think they are because they are probably a bit further south than where they should be. So today we're going to be talking about the tomb of the kings of David and Solomon. This is something we have discussed at length on Watch Jerusalem, uh, the the website. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has done numerous programs about this, about the future discovery of uh, of the Tomb of the Kings, and I'll have a clip or two from one of his programs uh, that you can find online later on in this podcast. But what I'm going to do is go through some of the actual historical record of the Tomb of the Kings, show that these are not a mythical thing, uh, just like David himself is not a mythical character. He is a historically proven character or person outside the Bible, even, as we talked about in last week's program. Uh, and Solomon, of course, is a historical figure. It makes sense if David is a, was a king and he's proven that his son Solomon would be proven. And then you're going to go on down the line and you talk about all these, the kings of the northern tribes of Israel and also the southern kingdom of Judah once they split 
uh, during the time of, of, of Solomon's son, you have found numerous archaeological support for these biblical kings. Yes, we're talking about time going back 2,600, 2,700 years ago, even all the way back to David's time 3,000 years ago. Nevertheless, why should it be untrue? Why should just the passage of time deem something untrue from before? Why should we come along today and just because something was written 3,000 years ago determine that it's invalid or historically inaccurate? Why should we talk about historians from 2,000 years ago writing about history that was shortly took place before them and say that they didn't know what they were talking about? That's what we do today. That's what a lot of scholars do today. Go back into the reasonings and the motives of ancient writers, especially when it talks about the Bible, and talk about how, okay, some of it's true. There's a historical kernel of fact somewhere in there. Maybe the geography is correct. But surely not, surely not the actual stories and histories of David and Solomon and the amazing kingdom of Solomon. That's just, that's just uh, biblical exaggeration of writers uh, 400 years later that were trying to glorify the southern kingdom over the northern kingdom of Israel. That's what plenty of scholars uh, believe today, at least some of those in, at Tel Aviv University, that's what they believe. Sure, the Bible was written, much of it was written. If you look about the book, talk about the book of Kings, and we'll be quoting from the book of Kings, that was written around Jeremiah's time. Nevertheless, Jeremiah has access to a lot of historical documents, source documents that he would use. The book of Chronicles, the very last book of the Tanakh, that was written by Ezra during Ezra's time, about 150 years after, uh, 100 and so years after Jeremiah's time. And yet that records about some history we're going to cover today from David and Solomon's time. Is that accurate? Did he know what he was talking about? A lot of people say that they didn't know what they were talking about. For some reason, our modern minds think that we are somewhat uh, far more developed than the ancients, uh, <laughs> which is, is just the, uh, a state of vanity that exists in, our modern, in modern thought. That was actually prophesied in the Bible also. But we are going to talk about facts. We are going to talk about history, and we, we will talk about biblical history and also secular history as well. Now, this is a discovery that yet awaits. Biblical prophecy talks about in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 1 that the bones of the kings in the time of the end are going to come out from somewhere and they're going to be spread out by someone and I'm going to leave it to you to uncover more of that verse and I'll leave some material for you at the end of the show that you can if you so desire read more up about the prophecy of the discovery of the tomb of the kings I'm just going to talk about what the Bible talks about them and where they should be found according to biblical geography and then also what history says about the tomb of the kings they're recorded, these tombs, outside the Bible. Numerous people have written about them from 2,000, 2,500 years ago. Of course, the biblical evidence, the biblical geography is most important when discussing these tombs. Now, a great place to start in our study of looking at the geography of where these tombs are located is found in the book of Nehemiah. My son is named Nehemiah. He's named after this uh, biblical character, because I think he's one of the most dynamic, powerful, uh, emotional, yet diligent uh, and studious uh, workers in the Bible. Uh, nothing negative is recorded about him. He is a man of faith, and he's a man that worked fast. And so hopefully these are things I can instill in my own son. He's just two and a half at this time, so he's got he's got a bit of a a bit of a, so he's got some time to grow into this role, fulfilling at the type of Nehemiah. Nevertheless, the book of Nehemiah 
is recorded. It's originally part of the Ezra Scrolls. So this is written by the book of uh, written by written by Ezra, who was a contemporary. You can see that Nehemiah chapter eight and verse one talks about Ezra standing up on the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, on the first of Tishri, giving a message at the Watergate in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is there also. So these are contemporaries. And yet the book of Nehemiah is like a personal memoir of Nehemiah that was recorded inside the the scroll of Ezra and, and definitely uh, edited by Ezra and perhaps even those some, some thereafter also. And Nehemiah chapter 3 he is describing, he's the governor. This is somebody that's that's sent back from Shushan or Susa. This is the Persian capital during the reign of Artaxerxes. And he is a, as you can read in the first chapter, he is there as the cupbearer or one of the bodyguards of the king of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire rules over the known world at the time. And Nehemiah hears about the suffering of what's going on amongst the returnees of the Jews back to this area of Yehud, as it was known at the time, the province of Yehud or Judah, same thing. Uh, And he asked the king whether it's fine if he goes back and and helps out the situation. The king, who holds Nehemiah's life in his hands, says it's fine for him to go back, discusses it with his wife, and then he is allowed to return. And you can read through this in Nehemiah chapter 2. Finally, in Nehemiah chapter 3, we get to the building of the wall that's going to be around the ancient city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem today, it's a a, a, a bit of a mad city. It can be at times. uh, And I live in Jerusalem, haven't been there for a few months, though, since I've been uh, over here in the UK. Um, But Jerusalem itself, if you talk about the old city of Jerusalem, that's where you have those big old walls that are only about 500 years old, most of them. They're the walls from the Ottoman period, uh, the period when the Turks were in charge over Jerusalem and this whole area. And, but the ancient city of Jerusalem is further to the south, south of where you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's the one with the brown-looking brown looking dome rather than the gold-looking dome. Uh, but further south of the Temple Mount, which houses the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, you have the city of David. David! It's named after David. This isn't just some type of name that uh, Jews that have come back uh, to the state of Israel since 1948 have called this area. That's what it was called anciently. This was a city that was originally inhabited by Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. And then we, it, 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 we, it leaves us from the biblical narrative for some time until we, we return there with Joshua and him coming across and, and uh, bringing the Israelites and taking the promised land. But he is unable to take Jerusalem. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin are not able to take Jerusalem. Jerusalem lives on the uh, the border area of of uh, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, North Judah, South Benjamin. There's Jerusalem. Of course, it was called Jebus at the time, and the Jebusites lived there. And it would be a good 400 years till King David comes along, and then David is made king over both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He rules first for by, at Hebron, one of the main cities of the tribe of Judah, and eventually eight years or seven years into his reign, he conquers Jebus. He conquers Jerusalem and he calls it the city of David. Second Samuel 5 talks about this, how he conquered the fortress of Zion. Just another name for it. Zion is just this hill that Jerusalem was uh, the geographic term to describe the hill of uh, that, that Jebus or, or the city of Salem was built on. 
and he just renames it City of David. So that's why it's called the City of David. This is not a reconstruction. There was just a, uh, a, a hit piece by the BBC a week and a half ago about uh, the City of David Foundation that runs the tourist center there um, uh, on the site and has done a lot over the past 20 years or so to, or let's say a bit less than that, uh, to encourage excavation, archaeological discovery uh, of this area. And on that, they tried to claim that the city of David was a new term that the state of Israel has put on this place. Well, the term actually goes back a good 3,000 years, and it was named such by David. Second Samuel 5 talks about that. Okay, so we've got Nehemiah is about seven or 600 or 550, let's put it that way. No, I think, yeah, 550. He comes around 445 BCE. So about 450 years after King David takes Jerusalem, the city has since gone through massive destruction at the hands of the Babylonian people. That was the empire that would rule the world uh, before the Persian, before the one that sent Nehemiah back. And he comes on the scene and they are allowed, the Jews are allowed to return after 70 years, which again was prophesied by Jeremiah. These are all facts that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Um, he comes back, uh, <clears throat> not initially with Zerubbabel. He would be the governor, bef- uh, a couple of governors before Nehemiah. Nehemiah would come back uh, about 70 or 80 years after that and finally restore the wall around Jerusalem. They needed to build a wall to keep out to keep out those people that were trying to overrun Jerusalem. And these and the, all those these people in Nehemiah chapter uh, 3, Nehemiah chapter three, uh, 2, Sanballat is one of them, Tobiah, Ge- uh, Geshem, these are governors of equal rank to Nehemiah, but of different people, one to the north, Sanballat over the Samaritans, Ammon, uh, Tobiah over the Ammonites on the other side of the Jordan River, in modern-day Jordan, and Geshem to the south, the territory to the south. And this, then, of course, you had the ancient Ashdodds, Ashdodites, I should say, on the coast as well, Surrounding the little province of Yehud, which was basically the tribal area of Judah, even smaller than that. That's what Nehemiah was governor over, a small-time governor. And he's coming back, and he's allowed to come back by the Persian king. And you've got all these enemies that are trying to stop the work from going on in Jerusalem. And he decides, Nehemiah does, to build a wall. To build a wall, the famous wall that's built in 52 days. Now, Nehemiah, as I said, was a fast worker. And uh, he built the wall quite fast. But what isn't, uh, what we tend to not think about is this wasn't a fresh wall. This wasn't a wall that was uh, on a new place. This was a wall around the old city of David. This was a wall around this small southern spur. If you think about it as a peninsula of land with deep valleys on, if you're looking at it, looking towards the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and you've got all this, this land in front of you, if you're above, to the right, you've got the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and then you've got the City of David in the middle, and to the left, you can't really see a valley, but it's the Cheesemakers Valley, the Tyropian Valley. There was a valley there anciently that has been since filled in. And so Nehemiah and the families that were there in ancient Yehud around 450 start building this wall, and they build it all at once. Different families from different locations are going to build portions of this wall at once. And one family is going to start where the other family would end. But it goes up concurrently, all of it. They're not waiting, not building two leading edges for the entire wall. They're building it all at once. Now let's talk about the Tomb of the Kings. Because in Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, these, these tombs of the kings or sepulchers of the kings are mentioned. 
sepulchers of the king are mentioned. This is Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 16. It says this, And after him, so after one of the family members, where it talks about the spring gate, where's the spring gate? Well, the Gihon Spring is the only spring in Jerusalem, the only perennial spring in Jerusalem, and it is just down from where the Palace of David has been discovered uh, by archaeologist Elot Mazar. We will talk about that a little bit later. But we have the spring gate listed in verse 15, and perhaps I'll read just verse 15 as well. Uh, it talks about uh, the spring gate, uh, and then uh, Shalom was a different man who, who, who did work on the Pool of Siloam, which is down by the south, uh, very southern tip of the city of David, unto the stairs that go down by the city of David. And then we have Nehemiah 3 and verse 16. And after this, or after the spring gate, we have Nehemiah. This is a different Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah I'm talking about. The son of Azbuk, the ruler of Hathbad of Bethzur, and he built unto the place over against the sepulchres of David. Sepulchres of David, tomb of the kings. They are mentioned there during the time of Nehemiah. And so you might think from the Babylonian period that the sep- uh, because we had the, the destruction of ancient Judah during the time of Jeremiah and Zedekiah is the final king and they go into Babylonian captivity and the land is pretty much uh, allowed to keep her Sabbaths, as it's called, as it's said in the last, uh, last chapter of the book of Chronicles, it's allowed to be at rest for a while that people might have forgotten where the sepulchres of the kings were, the two sepulchres of David were, but not so. Nehemiah comes back and in 450, they are known exactly where they are. And this other Nehemiah gets to build the wall around Jerusalem right next to the sepulchres of David, the sepulchres of David. So at that point, they are not lost to history. And we know from uh, from this description in Nehemiah chapter 3 that he's traveling in an anti-clockwise or counterclockwise direction from the start of this uh, start of this chapter all the way through, talking about which family is going to build, then the next family, and then the next family, and then the next family. So we know that based on the geography of some of these features, that they are on the eastern side of the city of David, which borders the Kidron Valley, and it's somewhere close to the Spring Gate somewhere close to some stairs that go down. And if you go uh, if you go to Nehemiah chapter 12, we won't go there as w- at this point, but a similar uh, route is taken. This is after the this is after, a similar description is, is given. This is after the wall is completed and there's priests walking around the walls uh, walking walking on the wall celebrating its finish uh, construction and instead of using the term sepulchers of the king, it's used the term house of David. Sepulchres of David, sorry, House of David. And so you've got this really interesting uh, passage of scripture, both of these in the book of Nehemiah, which describe a sepulcher of a king and a house of the king. And they're both different chapters look to be put in the same location, same location. And so we have an article up on Watch Jerusalem. It's entitled The Tomb of the Kings. I'm going to leave a link for it uh, for you in in the show notes so you can just prove everything I'm telling you. I don't you just listen to this podcast. That's going to be not enough to excite you about the future discovery of the Tomb of the Kings and where they are possibly located as well. But that the article will if you take time to read through it. Now, while I'm while I'm mentioning what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 12 about the, the house of David being mentioned, this could be a reference to the palace of David, the palace of David. 
And the Palace of David is significant for a number of reasons. It's because one of the reasons is the Palace of David has been discovered. <laughs> That's one reason of why it's important. If we've got the palace discovered uh, and the palace is meant to be by the sepulchres of David, perhaps even uh, part of the same construction, that means we might be able to locate where the tomb of the kings are found or should be. It gives us a good idea of where they might be. Now, the Bible says that the kings of, of Judah, in numerous times in the Bible, it says that they were buried in the city of David. They were buried somewhere in the city of David. Whenever it's a righteous king, it says, whether it's David or Solomon, um, Asa, others, it says that they were buried inside the city of David in the sepulcher of the kings or in the sepulcher of their fathers. There are plenty of kings uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah that are not buried inside the tomb of the kings. Some of the unrighteous kings are not buried inside the tomb of the kings. They could be buried in the city of David, but not in the very tomb of David and Solomon. So when I say this is the tomb of David or the sepulcher of David, this is a large structure. This should be a large structure with numerous chambers, and even history bears testament to that as well, with several chambers some of them untouched uh, to this day, some of them already raided, believe it or not. Now, there are other examples in Scripture where there are tombs that are buried, that are built, sorry, underneath the palace or the house of the person that lived there as part of a single construction that when you were thinking of building your house, uh, your fresh big house, your big palace, that you're also constructing a tomb for yourself and for your family. Now you can see that that when the prophet Samuel died over in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 1, it says that the Israelites buried him in his house at Ramah. And so this was his own uh, mausoleum. This was somewhere that he would be buried that was underneath his house. And this is also something that exists in the northern kingdom as well. You'll recall I talked about how there was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And one of the dynasties that would rule for a time was the famous dynasty of Omri and Ahab. Ahab was part of, was one of the nemesis or the enemies of the prophet Elijah. Well, they had their capital city at Samaria. And if you want to travel today into uh, Samaria in the north there, uh, some people can go and visit this site, others cannot. Um, but there is a massive palace there from Ahab's time and Omri's time. Their palace has been discovered also. But what did they find underneath the palace of Ahab and Omri? And we're talking about just 150 years from David around that time. This is from an article in Biblical Archaeology Review entitled Lost Tombs of the Israelite Kings. And this is written by Norma Franklin. I believe she's University of Haifa, uh, but I'm not 100%, so apologies if, I got, if I've got that wrong. She says, or she believes, that the, there are two tombs under Omri's palace. Well, there are two tombs underneath the palace and underneath, uh, underneath the courtyard of the palace that was built for them. And she believes that Omri was built, Omri's tomb was built first before the palace was erected. She describes, and you can actually see some pictures and videos of this online, tunnels that are going into the side of the rock where you have, the which are tombs, and then the palace itself was built above. Now, she quotes Isaiah 14 and verse 18. This is Norma Franklin. She's not particularly, a, a let's say, a, someone that believes in the accuracy of the uh, scriptures when talks about David. 
Uh, nevertheless, she understands these scriptures. Isaiah 14, verse 8 says, All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. In his own house. And she writes that David and his descendants from Rehoboam to Ahaz were all buried in their houses, that is, in their palaces. Now, there's not too much in the Bible about that. That quote um, is, uh, I think it, it it makes sense, but you probably couldn't quote too many, too, too many uh, scriptures to show that that was the case. We know that they're buried in the city of David. We know that some of them were buried in their houses. We have Samuel's example. We have that scripture in Isaiah. And we also have the, the example of what Omri and Ahab did in Samaria. Now, why dwell on what's going on in Samaria? Because they built a palace, and underneath the palace, their palace was a tomb. Where did they get that idea from? We know Samuel did it. Makes sense also that they probably got it from the king's house in Jerusalem, David's very house as well. This is what Nadav uh, Naaman wrote, another archaeologist back in 2004, He writes this, the above makes it clear that the practice of burying kings in their houses, namely their palaces, conceived as palaces of dwelling and rest in life and afterlife, was widespread all over the ancient Near East. This supports the assumption that the kings of the house of David were also buried in the royal palace. Now, I don't know why more people aren't talking about this. Some of these articles that I've just quoted, uh, well, the first one was 2007. This was just after the Palace of David was discovered. The second one here from Nadav Naman, that was uh, 2004. So it was written before the discovery of King David's palace. And so they're writing, both of them, that we should find the tomb of the kings somewhere near David's palace or, under, or underneath, sorry, the palace of the kings. And then King David's palace is discovered. And the tomb of the kings as for this moment, lies undiscovered. Of course, there's plenty of people, as I said, that believe it was way further south, away from the Palace of David, and Dr. Elotmazar's proof of the Palace of David is strong, is solid, the construction date fits, the majestic size of the building fits, what was discovered, the stuff inside it fits, the dating fits, and so it's a great uh, conception that it is the Palace of David, And there's more and more people coming around to believe that it is the Palace of David. If it's not the Palace of David, as I say when I'm giving tours of this area, then it's an absolutely massive building that was built outside the city walls of the Jebusites that David conquered. And it was built during the time of David. And what does, do we have a historical document that talks about a building that was built just north of the ancient Jebusite city at the time of David? Yes, we do. It's called David's Palace. And so it's got a right place, right time. Uh, and it fits the, all the biblical description, so why not? And so if that is the case, shouldn't the Tomb of the Kings be somewhere around David's palace? And it matches. It matches what we're talking about when we go to the book of Nehemiah. Of course, right next to on the eastern wall of the Palace of David. Also, we discovered back in 2007, I think we're excavating there. Yeah, 2007 and eight. Over over a little, there was just a little salvage excavation. I think I've talked about this before. Um, uh, one of my colleagues and myself were just uh, helping out Dr. Elot Mazar in her offices at the Shalem Center at the time uh, in the German colony. And we were working basically as interns there and processing some of the archaeological discoveries. 
And she said, oh, there's a small dig going on back over at the palace area. It's basically at Selvage Excavation. There's a tower that's falling down. This is a rocky tower. It's from 2,200 years ago, so it's outside the biblical period, so it's not that important. Do you guys want to go and, you know, help them out dismantle this tower? We're going to have to dismantle it until we find some place that's going to be, uh, take off some layers so, so it's going to be stabilized, and then we can build it back up. We can build it back up and uh, reconstruct it so that it, it stays the test of time. So we said, yes, let's do it. Sounds like fun. Get out in the, get out in the, uh, get out in the sun again after being uh, caught up in the office for too long and eating too much pita and shawarma and falafel. So we went back out there and we excavated. And we excavated for a few weeks and that's all it took to actually remove this entire tower, Rocky Tower from 2,200 years ago. Except when we got underneath the bottom of this rocky tower that's adjacent to the Palace of David, that's just above the stepstone structure there, if you're familiar with the area, we discovered that it wasn't a tower from 2,200 years ago. It was a tower from Nehemiah's time. A tower from the biblical, the time of the biblical governor of this area, Nehemiah. And so we have Nehemiah's wall actually running along the top of the eastern border or eastern side of the Palace of David. And that's that's archaeology talking. Uh, matched too, of course, with the biblical um, source as well. Otherwise, we'd just have a wall from some random time in history without a story or a bit of uh, history to attach to it, which doesn't excite anybody. And history obviously needs uh, historians to write about it that we can match text to, to artifact with. And that's what Dr. Mazar has done. And you can also read our article on Nehemiah's Wall to help prove that to you. This is one of the most read articles on Watch Jerusalem. It was published, I believe, last year. It's almost got 100,000 people have read it. And so you could go ahead and read that. And so what we have is David's palace, which we are contending based on the Bible uh, and based on other archaeologists. And we have David's palace that... Uh, based on those sources, that the Tomb of the Kings is meant to be somewhere close to it, perhaps beneath it, somewhere beneath it. And we also have the attachment of Nehemiah's wall. Nehemiah 3 verse 16 mentions that this man, Nehemiah, different Nehemiah, built up to the sepulchres of David, which if you go on the geography there, we have a match that it should be somewhere where the palace of David has been found today. And so it should be around there. The tomb of the kings of David and Solomon should be around there. Okay, so if they are, is it possible that there's something left in them? Or has it been raided? Have these tombs been raided? Now, there are a number of historical accounts that talk about the tomb of the kings outside of the Bible after the biblical period. And... We go through that in in these articles. There were numerous people that raided the tombs of David and Solomon or the Tomb of the Kings or the Sepulchres of David, same thing. One of them was, one of these rooms was raided by uh, Hyrcanus. Jonathan Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabees, I think he was, uh, I think he was maybe Mattathias' grandson or great-grandson, just from my, my memory here. And he was during the time during the time of the Seleucid Empire, and you had one of the Antiochuses, I think it might have been Antiochus V or Sixth. Uh, this is around 2nd century BCE. So actually, I think it's right at the turn of the century. So perhaps around 105, something like that, BCE. And you have a reference 
in Josephus, the historian that was writing 100 years after this time, about Hyrcanus needing to pay off Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire. Seleucid Empire is ruled from Antioch up in, in modern-day Syria. And in order to pay him off, so that he wouldn't, that he would stop besieging the city, Hyrcanus actually raided the tomb of the kings, one of the rooms of David, uh, David's sepulchre. And he withdrew 3,000 talents of silver, and he paid off Antiochus, one of the Antiochuses. And this is in Jewish, uh, the Antiquities of the Jews, Book Seven, Chapter Fifteenth, num- Number Chapter Fifteen, Number Three. So we have him raiding one of the rooms. Then, about a hundred years later, we have the infamous King Herod, uh, him coming, uh, and he is needing some money as well. You all know of his vast building projects all the way around Jerusalem, and really all of Israel, if you if you count. Caesarea. He also built up Samaria for that matter. Sebaste, he called it. Um, at numerous places, Herodium, he built his massive tomb, uh, his massive place where he would be living when he would die as well at Herodium. He also built up Masada uh, and so on. So you know a lot about Herod. Where did he get all the money? Where did he get all the money for the things that he needed to build? build? Well, one of the sources, according to Josephus, and Josephus, remember this, he's only living... Like he's born maybe 30 or 40 years after Herod the Great dies. So this is like me right now writing about something that happens of the the most powerful ruler of my country 40 years ago. Now, I'm not going to talk about the, the rulers of Australia from 40 years ago because my memory is is not that good. Uh, but let's talk about somebody in the 70s that was uh, ruling in the 70s or a president in the 70s or a prime minister in the 70s. Menachem Begin, there we go. He is, he's a prime minister in the 70s. Okay, it's like me writing about something uh, that happened in Menachem Begin's time. Or let's say a little bit earlier because he wrote it a little bit later in life. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to show is it would be absolutely crazy for me to make up false history of Menachem Begin, Golda Meir, or uh, I don't know, any of any of the earlier presidents and prime ministers of Israel. That would be very strange. You all know, you call me a liar if I said something wrong, or at least debate me in it. Would you claim that something... Uh, like Josephus did about Herod of this magnitude that I'm about to read, if it was not true, you would be discrediting yourself as a historian completely, instantaneously. This is what Herod wrote. Sorry, this is what Josephus writes about what King Herod did after he was in need of a lot of money. He opened that sepulcher by night and went into it and endeavored that it should not be at all known in the city, but took only his most faithful friends with him. As for any money, he found none, as Hyrcanus had done, but the furniture of gold and those precious goods that were laid up there, all of which he took away. So here we have somebody from you know the turn, the turn of the millennium, first millennium at the very beginning, uh, when it goes from... Uh, BCE to CE, you have Herod living, and just before that, he's raiding the term, tomb, he's doing it in secret, doesn't find any money, at least as far as he goes. He does find some gold, furniture of gold, takes that with him. So he did this secretly at night. Um, obviously, this was not something that would have been liked 
by by the Jews, by the people that were living there at the time. Herod, a bit of a half Jew, uh, trying to keep in the good graces of Rome at the same time, rule rule over the Jewish people without getting them too upset, as well. And so he raided it uh, and got some stuff out of it. But he didn't stop there. He actually had to go back and get more. He wanted more. So he goes in there a second time. And this is what Antiquities of the Jews says. And we are in Book 16, Chapter 7, Number 1. Quote, He had a great desire to make a more diligent search and to go farther in, even as far as the very bodies of David and Solomon. That's what Josephus wrote. Nevertheless, as he was going that far and approached the bones of David and Solomon, according to Josephus, these men, or was a couple of men that were with him, these two, two individuals, two of his guards, they came across a flame that burst out on them. This, this is what happened. He was going to go even as far as the sepulchres of David and Solomon. As I said before, there's numerous righteous kings, perhaps six or seven, that are buried in this tomb. And Hyrcanus went in, got some stuff. Herod went in once, got some stuff. Then he goes in again, and fire comes out. Fire comes out and devours two of his men. Now, you might say again, this is crazy. Fire working like this. Uh, Remember, Josephus is writing about something that happened, a stone's throw from his lifetime. And his whole credibility is on the line here. Um, referring to the events that he's he's describing, so it would be crazy for him to make this up, make this up. And so what happened? Now continuing the quote, so he was terribly frightened. That is Herod, and went out and built a built a propitiatory monument of that fright that he had been in, and this of white stone at the mouth of the sepulchre, and that at great expense also. And so he basically. It seems from this, shuts up the tomb. He puts right there a big white monument of some sort, and there is an inscription. I don't think we have that in this article, but it talks about how um, that he warned people from going here because it's the tombs. It's the tombs of David and Solomon. A couple of my men died as they went to try and to go in where the bodies of David and Solomon were. Imagine that. This is a thousand years after David. And there's his body. Still there, obviously, rotted away, not meaning much at all. <laughs> it's it just, it just back to the earth as we all are, as we all go eventually, back to the earth, as the Bible says. Dust you are, dust you shall become. But he was there. His, where his body was laid to rest, there it was. And also Solomon, his sons, during Herod the Great's time. Okay, so what happened? After Herod the Great's time, there are another couple of mentions to the sepulchre of the kings. One of them comes from uh, the writings of the book of Acts. And there you've got Peter talking. And this is around 33, I think, um, uh, 31, 33, yeah, in that, in that time period, um, BC, uh, CE now. And he is, he is talking, giving this message, and this is in Acts chapter 2. And he says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Now, everyone didn't just stop and say, come on, what are you talking about? Talking about David's sepulcher. What do you mean David's sepulcher is with us to this day? They knew, they once said that. 
No one, no one, no one was worried when he mentioned that. They all knew. They all knew in 31 AD, 31 AD, 31 CD, where the tomb of the kings was. In fact, it was used in a message here uh, by Peter. So this was, again, uh, I mean, Josephus was, was, I think he was uh, born in 40 uh, CE. I'm just giving a guess at that. Um, So not long after that, he's going to start writing about these things. But you do have, you do have somebody at the turn of millennium writing and nobody discrediting that the tomb of the kings was there. And not only was the tomb of the kings there, it still housed the bones of, of the bones of David. Now, even as late as the early third century, so somewhere around 220 to 230 CE, we have another historical reference to David's sepulchre. And this is, um, this is in the, in the Tosefta, uh, and it talks about uh, the grave of Huldah as well, next to the, the house of David, or, or at least she perhaps she's close to it or in it uh, as well. Huldah the prophetess, I think she was during uh, Josiah's time. And it says there, quote, And no one ever laid a hand on them to move them. And then Rabbi Akiva responds this way, What proof is there from this, the fact, in point of fact, they had underground channels as it would remove uncleanness into the Kidron Brook. So it's talking about how nobody has removed these these dead bones um, from the sepulcher of the kings, and this is again second cent- or third century, and critically, this is after Jerusalem has been destroyed. So just as Nehemiah is going back after the Babylonian captivity, and he says the sepulcher of the kings is still with us, here's Rabbi Akiva saying that the sepulcher of the kings is still with us after the massive destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE at the hands of Titus the Roman. It's still there. We know where it is. 200 plus uh, CE. And there's channels. There's, uh, there's, what did he say? Underground channels pointing to where this might be uh, coming through the Tomb of the Kings at this time during the time of Rabbi Akiva. So this is pretty interesting. And if they are, if there is tunnels, if there are tunnels, sorry, I should say, and they're coming out, and water occasionally runs through them. That comes out by the tomb of the kings, and it runs where? Well, it says it goes right into the Kidron Brook. Well, where's the Kidron Brook? You can't see it today, but it's inside. It was inside the Kidron Valley, which is on the eastern side of the city of David, which the palace of David overlooks. And so you have. Historical references saying the Tomb of the Kings is still there at least 1,800 years ago. Nobody has really come and said that they plundered the, uh, the Tomb of the Kings since that time. No historical evidence has come forward that it has gone uh, from the scene. Of course, you do have, again, these cut-out cisterns or tombs from further south in the city of David, but there's nothing there. And it makes sense to me that if David was going to, if God, sorry, was going to stop King Herod from getting to the point of David and Solomon's bones, that he would also stop anyone else that was trying to get to David and Solomon's bones throughout history till they would be discovered when it would really mean something, when it would really mean something. It would really mean something today if the tomb of the kings of David, King David, and King Solomon, and the other righteous kings were discovered. The Bible says, as well as secular history, 
that it's on the eastern side of the city of David and most likely right next to or under somewhere the palace of David is going along from other what other archaeologists have said. And so is it there? Is it there? Is it waiting to be discovered? And what a remarkable discovery that would be. I mean, it, it, just, it would just make the program I gave last week about the scoffers that would come along and discredit whether David and Solomon really existed. And it would just be like, okay, well, you, can, you know that you can visit. You know that you can go and see David and Solomon's tomb. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that at this point in our history, uh, at this point and where we are in history and where we are in terms of biblical prophecy as well, that there would be no fire that would come out <laughs> of the tomb of the kings through one of these tunnels, one of these chambers and burnt us up if we were visiting it. I think it's God's set time for these things to be discovered. You can even go and see that uh, in, in, in the Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 104. It talks about the set time has come. The set time for discovery of these things. It says, the servants of God take pleasure in the stones and the dust of Jerusalem. And that takes a lot of effort. It's not easy. I tell you what, it's not easy to excavate in Jerusalem. It's probably one of the hardest things there are to do. You, you try and you try and you see the the international focus and backlash against archaeological excavation in the most important location in the world for the Jewish people. I would say for the Christian people as well. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the ancient city of King David himself being excavated and whether that's a good thing or not. Now, how would, that, how, how would that standard apply to any other nation or location on earth? If you're anywhere on earth other than this little patch of land, let's call it this, this 10, 15 acres, whatever it is, and you're sitting on the history of your nation from 3,000 years ago, you go in there and you tell the people that are living there, you say, I'm sorry, but, but do you know that you're, you're, you're inhabiting the same location that our forefathers did 3,000 years ago. And not just that, this was the capital. This was the capital of our ancient kingdom. And the Bible that all of you hold high, all of you have esteem for, apparently, that Bible is centered on the establishment of Jerusalem as the capital, the capital of the Israelite nation under King David, and the capital, if you read the prophecies in the Bible, of the future kingdom of the Messiah. It's going to happen right here, right here on this little patch of earth. And you imagine, you imagine the, the difficulty at trying to excavate that patch of earth to uncover some of this history. It is phenomenal. It's like the whole international press is on the case of anyone that would like to excavate this area. You can't do it. You're, you're ethnically cleansing the Palestinians that have lived here for the past 30 or 40 years, they would say. In any other country in the world, you would say, well, here's a bunch of money. Go and live somewhere else if you rightfully own this place. And we're going to excavate our national history, thank you very much. And nobody would have a problem with that. No one. But apparently, it's a big problem for it to be done here in the ancient city of David. The double standard is absolutely crazy, but but really, 
uh, we don't have to worry about these things. Uh, the Bible prophesies in, in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 1 that the bones of the kings, they're going to be discovered. It will happen in, in the face of all adversity, all difficulty, anything that anyone can throw up against it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. These things will be discovered. The sepulchres of the kings will be discovered. And we're right there. I mean, I mean, we're close. <laughs> we're close. There's someone there. Somewhere there. They're going to be found. That's what the Bible says. That's what history says as well, uh, as we've covered on today's program. Now, I hope you're excited about the future discovery of the tomb of the kings of David. It hasn't happened just yet. The discovery does await, and what an electrifying discovery that would be. I just want to finish by playing the introduction to our Editor-in-Chief's program, Mr. Gerald Flory's Key of David program. This has got about 150,000 views on YouTube. I think it just came out a couple months ago. You can go and check that out if you like. I'll leave a link for that as well. This is just the very beginning, uh, or just uh, very close to the beginning of his program and hopefully hearing his voice talk about this as well, it will excite you for the future discovery of the Tomb of the Kings. The Tombs of the Kings are, are a sign, really, to uh, anybody who wants to understand the Bible, but they are a sign, and they're going to be a sign of precisely where we are in Bible prophecy. And it is going to be something that... Uh, is going to be somewhat of a world sensation according to uh, a prophecy in Jeremiah. The righteous kings sat on David's throne, and they were actually buried in a massive tomb. And uh, that's all mentioned to us in the Bible. And the uh, the other the kings or those righteous kings are going to be right there with David and Solomon. So you can see this would mean a great deal to God. And if we look at the uh, history in Jerusalem now, you can actually see that David's palace has been uncovered. And it's uh, the very place, according to the Bible, it almost certainly points to to the tombs of the king being right under David's palace. Of course, David's palace was where David's throne was. So it's either just under David's palace or very close to it. 